I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me as always to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick. And James Hunt. It's Cinematic Universe Original Recipe, and we will be running through the latest comic book movie and TV news, uh, and then discussing Sam Raimi's 2002 film Spider-Man during our main discussion. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comic book concept that, as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And guys, this was brought up on Twitter recently. This is Fantastic Four related. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> What's this baby and why is it so confusing? Do you mean Franklin Franklin Richards? Yes, chi- the child of Reed and Sue Richards, right? Yeah, I mean, they have two children. Okay, but explain it all to me. Okay, uh, Franklin Richards is their son. Uh, he, for a while, he went into the future and became the villain Hyperstorm, uh, but he's a kid again now. Wait, so he so he grew up and then went into the future? He was No, he was taken to the future where he grew up and became a supervillain. Okay, uh, and then came they, back. They undid that, it's fine. Right. Yeah, he's a mutant uh, who has the power to alter reality in a kind of general, non-specific way. Oh, well, there's your Fantastic Four um, X-Men crossover sorted then. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> You just do a just do a Franklin Richards movie. So how do how do children tend to work in superhero comics? Because do they age, or do do, do you find that people have babies for years? They age kind of unevenly because like Franklin Richards was four for probably what fifteen twenty years maybe, and then he had a younger sister, and then he became about sort of eight. It's kind of like The Simpsons, really. Yeah, like most most superheroes don't have children, but like because the Fantastic Four is a sort of uh, family dynamic it can accommodate that sort of thing where Spider-Man can't really and so what's the current status quo with uh, Franklin Richards He he's an 8 year old and he's got a younger sister called Valeria who was sort of midwifed by Doctor Doom and Doctor Doom is her godfather um, we should also what? point out that <laughs> as we're recording this in the, while Secret Wars is going on there kind of currently is no status quo um, because yeah. like everything has been torn up, and at the moment the Marvel Universe consists of Battle World, which is uh, a composite Earth put together by Doctor Doom, who is God, and Valeria Richards has actually been a significant character in it so far. And because Marvel hates Fox, 
Pretty much. Although, yeah, yeah. well, the interesting thing is that actually so far, the Fantastic Four have been really... Well, um, Reed and Sue and, and Valeria Richards and Doctor Doom have been really integral to this event so far. But that's got more, to, I think, to do with the fact that it's written by Jonathan Hickman, who was writing the Fantastic Four for several years and who was basically finishing the long-form story that he started with his Fantastic Four run. So, And I think Marvel are also going to use this as an opportunity to quietly shuffle some or all of the Fantastic Four off the board for a while. Well, so from from that from those images they've released, isn't it that the thing is in the Guardians of the Galaxy? The thing is going to be in Guardians of the Galaxy. I think Johnny Storm is going to is be he around. In the humans? One of them's in, in the Inhumans, aren't they? Yeah, Johnny Storm's with the Inhumans. Yeah, who are Fantastic Four characters anyway? Uh, right, kind of. Um, but not they. But they're they're not part of the Fantastic Four movie rights. Is the crucial thing. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think I think the heavy rumor is that if any major character is not going to survive Secret Wars, it's going to be Reed. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Does it make sense to rest the Fantastic Four um, outside of wanting to be vindictive to Fox or? Because <laughs> I, mean, I hear whenever I hear about the Fantastic Four, it's kind of okay, like the first family of superheroes, but. They're very. They feel very dated, relatively. Is that there aren't? They've they've been a like terminally mid-selling property for years now, and like it doesn't matter. They put Mark Miller on there, and Brian Hitch, and that didn't raise sales. And they put Jonathan Hickman on, and he did an amazing crit- critically acclaimed run, and that didn't really raise sales. The thing is, it's it's been shown in the relatively recent past that giving a property a rest can help it, as as happened with Thor. Although I think the movie helped with Thor as well. But I would say that with only with the exception of Spider-Man, any Marvel character or property could stand to have a rest for a little while and then be brought back with a fresh approach instead of just keeping it trundling along. Mm. Um, I think those breaks can do wonders for a character. Um, it's what it looked like they were going to do with Wolverine, but it turns out that what they're doing with Wolverine is just bringing in old man Logan instead. Um, as I say, it's worked with Thor in the past. I could see it working with the Fantastic Four. If you give the Fantastic Four a couple of years off... Um, and then wait do something for the movie genuinely fresh to fail, and then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then go. All right, lads, you can come back now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I imagine we're probably going to be talking quite a bit more about Fantastic Four in the uh, in the coming months with that movie coming to cinemas. Um, so we will move on now to our comic book movie news segment, um, and I wanted to start with talking about Vixen, which is a comic book. TV property, which I imagine probably a lot of people don't know about. I mean, because Seb, me and you were just discussing before the show that we didn't really know about it until very recently. So Vixen is going to be um, a six-part animated series that is coming up on so CW Seed, which is kind of like, I, I think, their, their kids' version um, of the channel. And it is going to be a superhero property about the character Vixen that takes place in the same universe as Flash and Arrow. Um, Stephen Amell and Grant Gustin and Emily Bett Rickards um, uh, and uh, Carlos Valdez actually are all going to be providing voices for that show as Vixen crosses over with the the live action DC TV characters and I believe that there are plans for Vixen to at least show up in one live ac- live action episode of Eva Flash as well. Um, and we found out that the, the character of Vixen has been cast. She's going to be played by Megalyn Ekikunwoke. I, I, I probably butchered that pronunciation. But guys, I wanted to ask you, I mean, Seb in particular, you've been watching Flash. I've been watching Flash and Arrow. If you could tell me a little bit about Vixen, but also what you think about these plans to kind of 
merged the live action DC TV universe with a with an animated one. Can I just say I hope Vixen turns up as a sort of Roger Rabbit style animated character in the live action shows. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah, I don't know a huge amount about the character. I mean, I know who she is. Um, I've not read a lot of comics with her in. Um, her kind of period of prominence, um, particularly when she was kind of first in the Justice League, is sort of early 80s, which, with the exception of a couple of things, is slightly before my comics read in time. main thing I know yeah. her from is a quite prominent appearance in the second volume of Grant Morrison's Animal Man. So if you carry on reading that, Joe, you'll, you'll oh, get to really? encounter her. Um, she kind of gets brought in because um, she has very similarly themed powers to Animal Man. Yeah, I'm reading here that the series will focus on the character, her alter ego, Mary McCabe, who, after the death of her parents, inherits a magical totem that bestows upon her the ability to access the inherent attributes of animals, from the speed of a cheetah to the powerhouse charge of a rhino and more. Yeah, so Sounds she's basically got Man. pretty much the same powers as Animal Man, just from a different source. And actually, that get that does get kind of touched upon in in the Animal Man comics in which she appears. Mm. Um, she's you know she's a she's a reasonably decent character um, from what I've read of her. She is a character who tends to sort of hover around the periphery of getting used in things like Justice League comics. I think partly because, to be brutally honest, um, she's a black female character and there aren't very many of those. Um, so, you know, in the interest of being diverse, it's it's quite good to have her around. It's like, if people are putting together, you know, sort of um, possible fantasy Justice League lineups, she's often in there because when you're looking at the Justice League, um, you need a bit of diversity in there because there's so many white male characters to choose from yeah um but i think you know the sort of she, uh, interesting power set as a character the kind of thing that i think is quite well suited to um serialized you know sort of tv or cartoon stories really because you know like something like animal man you can do a different type of story with her using a different type of animal power every week and it might be quite cool seeing this character popping up in like an episode of the flash yeah, I really like that as an idea because, you know, I, I like the way these shows have kind of built and crossed over. If I have a reservation, it's the fact that, you know, we've now got, well, we've got three live action shows, if you include Legends of Tomorrow. And obviously Legends of Tomorrow has got a couple of female characters in it. But from the look of it, it's kind of a male led show because it does seem that Ray Palmer and uh, Rip Hunter are kind of the lead characters in that. To, to do three live action shows that are kind of quite, you know, with male lead characters, and then the first one you do that is about an actual solo female lead character, I'm not counting Supergirl here because it's not part of the same universe as far as we know, mm. to have that be the animated one that's kind of the sideline uh, seems a little bit off. It's like, you know, could could they not have maybe done a, a live action series around her? But it, it's an interesting way to expand it. And I, I struggle to think of another example where you've got a live action you know, set of shows and you fold in an animated one that is literally part of the same continuity. That is pretty interesting. And the fact that all the guys are going to be doing the voices. Yeah, so the idea that you can kind of have her in an animated show and then all of a sudden the same actress popping up. Okay, so that's Vixen. So that's um, that's going to be coming up next year. Let's talk about another TV show now briefly. Agent Carter is going to be returning for season two. And in fact, season one is going to be... Um, airing on in the uk for the first time next week so if you haven't watched that yet start watching it download our old agent carter podcast it's a good plug season two of agent carter um, we're probably going to hear more in the next couple of weeks as uh, the show is going to have a panel at comic-con 
But we know that the show is moving to Los Angeles, that Peggy and Jarvis will both feature, um, and so will Enver Gokaj's uh, Agent Sousa. So we're going to have the those three characters over in um, over in Los Angeles, at least, maybe more. If I had to guess, I would say Angie will almost definitely show up as well. Guys, we've all watched Agent Carter. What do you think about these season two plans so far? Uh, I'm interested in how they contrive a way to get all of these familiar characters back to Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, I have a great idea. Go on. Angie goes out there to try and make a career acting. Something yeah, goes horribly wrong. Peggy and Jarvis show up, and Sousa, uh, who's kind of got a little bit of a crush on Peggy, follows or offers to help out at some point, and he ends up there as kind of like part of the team. What do you reckon? That sounds pretty good, right? Yeah. And we I mean, get kind of happen. an old school, like of an old school kind of like Hollywood mystery. Like let's let's have um, Agent Carter colon Sunset Boulevard. How good does that sound? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really like the New York setting, so I'm a bit, you know. I kind of wish it was that again. Whereas but, um, I, you know, but I, I, I think, I think the, I think that time period kind of suits LA really well. I think if you're going for a yeah. kind of Hollywood noir sort of look and feel to it, I think could be a, a really nice change of pace. And and if they can get him in for a couple of episodes again, so if they can get him in for another couple of episodes again around his preacher filming, then. Dominic Cooper, I think, would be a great kind of Hollywood mogul. Maybe he's financing some movies. Maybe he's even financing a Captain America movie. How good would that be? Uh, that could be another reason why they're out there. Maybe Angie is auditioning to play Peggy Carter in Captain America the movie. Because we you had the Adventure Hour running through the first series. What if there was a movie this time? Oh, I'm so on board with this idea, guys. What if it's an eight-episode <laughs> Agent Carter miniseries that they're making in 1950s Hollywood to air between some substandard show on one of the networks. (laughs) (laughs) Just get really meta. (laughs) You're going to disappoint people with these theories now if it's something much worse than that. I'm I'm looking forward to more Agent Carter. Um, Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. In the meantime, I will just amuse myself by following Hayley Atwell on Twitter, where she (laughs) As long as you only follow her on Twitter, Joe. I can't promise anything. Okay, well, that's it for this week's comic book, movie, and TV news. Let's move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Spider-Man. But before we dive in, let's listen to the original trailer for the movie. Who am I? You sure you want to know? If somebody told you I was just your average, ordinary guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. Truth is, it wasn't always like this. There was a time when life was a lot less complicated. Can I take your picture for the school paper? Sure. In this lab, we have 15 genetically enhanced super spiders. There's 14. One's missing. Peter, are you alright? I'm fine. Pete, look, you're changing. I know I went through exactly the same thing at your age. No, not exactly. Wow. Peter, may I introduce my father, Norman Osborne? Great honor to meet you, sir. Harry tells me you're quite the science whiz. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. What the hell? 
hell was that? Whatever it is, somebody has to stop it. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift. Wow. It is my curse. Who are you? Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. Okay, so that was the original trailer for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. And guys, I, I think we all, are all going to probably agree that this movie is a really interesting pivot point in superhero cinema. In that it kind of feels like a bookend in some way to the 90s. The fact that during its production, 9-11 happened and that I think changed the face of all blockbuster cinema and probably most pointedly superhero movies. So I think it's going to occupy an interesting place in that regard. So I thought if we could maybe start off by talking a little bit about kind of the build-up to the film in a number of regards and maybe start off by talking about quite how long it took to get Spider-Man to the screen because <laughs> I seem to remember when we were talking about Superman there was so we talked we've talked about the original Superman and the original Batman and how it was actually surprising that when Superman happened that there wasn't such a raft of other superhero films happening but actually Canon Films who made <laughs> Canon Films who were eventually destroyed by Superman for the Quest for Peace <laughs> were planning to make a Spider-Man movie. Roger Corman had briefly optioned the rights, and then Canon were going to try and make it directed by Toe Pooper. They were going to have Otto Octavius as the villain. Uh, they were eyeing Bob Hoskins to play him. They were looking at a young, up-and-coming Tom Cruise as maybe a Peter Parker. Uh, Stan Lee himself wanted to play J. Jonah Jameson. And then eventually <laughs> that film ended up falling apart because Superman IV, The Quest for Peace destroyed canon films basically and then it went through another decade of maybe productions with James Cameron wanting to make a really trippy kind of dream sequency like Kafka-esque Spider-Man as well on the back of True Lies and James Cameron wanted Arnie for Doctor Octopus didn't he yes yeah do, do you do you remember when any of that was happening or did you yeah I remember like vividly sort of picking up Wizard Magazine sort of every month, hearing the latest rumours about how Spider-Man was or wasn't about to start production. And this was sort of mid-90s, so, you know, the the build-up to this film, for me, lasted a good ten years. But then when this one finally did fall into place, I mean, I'm too young to remember, but you guys were talking about how it was maybe the first superhero movie that you kind of felt the buzz building on the internet in the years leading up? Yeah, I mean, I think to an extent, probably X-Men had had that, and James, you probably kind of paid closer attention to X-Men yeah, when it was being I, developed. I remember X-Men being the first movie I'd followed production, like literally the first sort of set photos that leaked, I followed every yeah. second of that production. Whereas I, I was like that with Spider-Man, basically. Like, I, I, I joined a forum um, on a website that was called that was then called SpiderManHype.com and is now called <laughs> SuperheroHype.com. In fact, I got, oh, my, wow. I got my start reviewing comics for Spider-Man Hype. I did some reviews of J. Michael Straczynski's Amazing Spider-Man. I don't think they're live anymore, which is good because I was quite positive about them and I don't really want evidence of me being positive about J. Michael Straczynski comics anywhere <laughs> on the internet. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I was right there kind of following the development of that from when when I knew it was happening and I probably like James I probably found out initially about kind of the Raimi film and the beginnings of the Raimi film from things like Wizard magazine but I kind of yeah I just I remember you know reading 
regularly about what was going on with the production of, of Spider-Man, um, I can vividly remember, I can still remember exactly where I was sitting and, you know, uh, like the time of day and stuff like that when the first image of the costume came online because there'd been so much speculation about the costume. And then this photo of him sitting crouched on a building with, like, a blue background was, was the first photo of the costume. And everyone was just like, oh, my God, they have exactly done the costume from the comics. This is, the, you know, and I think because of After X-Men... And it's great, isn't um, it? it? Oh, it's, it, oh, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, um, it looks great in those stills. It looks great when he's swinging through the streets. Yeah, it just it is Spider-Man. <laughs> Best, I still think it might be the best superhero movie costume. Uh, yeah, you would... possibly. Yeah, um, I, I do quite like though the um, even though I hate the film, um, the the Amazing Spider-Man two costume as an updating of it. I was going to say the Amazing Spider-Man two costume is slightly more comic accurate because it doesn't yeah. have mirrored eyes or raised webbing, does it? Yeah, I like the raised webbing. The the, the, the rainy one, <laughs> things like the kind of the lines of of where the boots are and stuff. It might look a bit more comicsy, but it looks a little bit kind of old hat. It's not very dynamic looking, I think. Uh, but no, in terms of like fidelity, it's it's fantastic. Um, you know, so I remember the discussion over things like what the Green Goblin was going to look like and various bits of concept art, and then the horror. When I, was, I also remember the first time there was a picture of the Green Goblin costume was a still of a, of the scene when he's um, bursting through where the where the burning building is, and everyone looked at it and everyone went, "Oh no, it's fine. We've heard that they're going to do CGI and put a purple cloak and hood on him." It's like that's not that's definitely not what it's going to look like. And then it became gradually apparent <laughs> that that was what it was going to look like. Um, and then, of course, there was the the teaser trailer, which uh, is you know the, again the day that that came online, I I could not tell you how many times I just sat there and watched that on a constant loop, and it was the most wonderful <laughs> thing I'd ever seen. It's phenomenal, isn't it? And we should we should we should explain to the listeners who might not have seen that what yeah. that is. So. It's a teaser trailer that ended up having to be fairly swiftly removed from cinemas, as did the first posters of Spider-Man. Um, the first posters had the trade, World Trade Centers reflected in Spider-Man's eyes, and the teaser trailer, the whole concept was about some bank robbers, was it, who mm-hmm. are eventually they're escaping in a helicopter, and the helicopter is stopped in a web that has been built between the. The, the brilliant towers. thing about it is that it's like you know, it's this trailer that goes on for about a good minute, minute and a half. That's yes, just this yeah. quite cliched-looking bank robbery, and you've got no idea what it is until, and it even look, it doesn't even really look like a film trailer. It looks like it's like a promo for like a bank, or there's a close-up of a Nokia phone, and you think it might be a Nokia advert, and then all of a sudden, the helicopter of these bank robbers stops in midair, and you pan out, and it's trapped in a spider web between. The Twin Towers, and you know, even if you don't know that there's a Spider-Man movie coming, the moment you see that spider web, any casual cinema goer would look at that and go, "It's Spider-Man." There's a Spider-Man movie, it, and it's just so perfectly pitched. It picks up on the old lyric from the uh, the TV show theme, you know, "The catches thieves just like flies," <laughs> it, and also, you know, as well by using the Twin Towers, it gets across um, the relationship between Spider-Man and New York, and New York is like yes. an integral character in any Spider-Man story. It's just perfect, and it was, you know, I feel terrible saying this and thinking it at the time but when 9-11 happened my first thought was oh well they're going to have to change the Spider-Man movie now Um, and you know they won't show that trailer again Um, at least now you can look back on it as it it wasn't my first thought but it was I did think it yeah I love that that was your first thought well that just tells you how obsessed I was with the development of this film I think anything has ever told me as much about your comic book obsession as that comment just then you know, I was sitting there thinking, oh, I guess 
I guess Western civilizations over then. But yeah, so it, you know, it really was just this. This you know, every step of the build up, I was kind of there with it, and then you know. I, I almost feel slightly ashamed admitting this as well, but it was the first movie that I ever pirated um, because I, I was in my first year at university and then someone said, oh, I've got... I didn't even download it myself. Someone gave me a, a CD with a terrible cam copy of the film burnt onto it about three weeks before it came out in the UK. And I knew I probably wasn't going to get the chance to go and see it on release because it came out while I was still, like, you know, during turn time when I would have had no money to go and see it. Um, so I did watch this terrible cam copy of it uh, a couple of weeks before it came out in cinemas <laughs> and was because I, ju- I just couldn't wait I just could not wait to see what a Spider-Man film was going to look like and so for both of you after all this build up did it did it live up to the hype as far as you were concerned see, or was it, it was it the at, at the time undoubtedly yes undoubtedly yeah. yes I was just you know I can, I can pick holes in it now and we undoubtedly will do but at the time I was just so unbelievably head over heels for it what about yeah. you James like I, I didn't follow the development that closely because I was kind of burnt out after a year and a half of refreshing uh, coming attractions, <laughs> looking for X-Men info. So I kind of let it burn away in the background. And when it came out, I was unprepared for how good it w- actually was. And it, it's the first film I ever saw twice at the cinema. Possibly the only one I've ever paid to see twice because normally I go like on a press thing and then, you know, again with my friends. But yeah, that one, I paid to go and see it twice and that's possibly the only time I've done that. Yeah, and you see, I still I still remember pretty vividly going to see this movie for the first time. And as we've established before, I'm a bit younger than you guys. This, this came out in 2002, so I was 13, 12, probably 12 when it first came out. And, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, um, and um, it was pretty much one of the first films I remember going to the cinema on my own to. In fact, I remember taking my younger sister um, and her friend, because I, I was trusted to take them to the cinema. And not even knowing that this film was coming out, completely just, you know, not really following any kind of movie hype whatsoever, just turning up at the cinema and seeing that this Spider-Man film was in previews. I think it was like the Wednesday and it was coming out on the Friday. So it was, you know, one of those advanced Mm -hmm. previews things. And going and seeing it and just absolutely falling in love with this character and the idea of Spider-Man, who was only someone I really knew about from maybe the odd cartoon. (laughs) <laughs> and I and I just loved it, and it's probably the first superhero movie that I properly watched or properly engaged with. And I think this might be a little bit for me, like Seb Superman is for you. I mean, mm. I don't think this is the best superhero movie ever made, but I I always find it difficult to move it. I mean, because it's not because the sequel is better, but yeah. this just holds a really special place in my heart. But yeah, I, I think for the first time actually watching it back this week, it felt dated to me it feels like it feels like a movie that is still kind of in the tradition of the of the 90 superhero movies and actually i think shares a lot in common with superman actually i don't know whether you'd agree with that i think so i mean structurally particularly um you know you've you've got you've got an hour long origin but you know what it does it better than than superman actually because like you know i, I you, you know and we already spent a while talking about how much i love superman but that first half of Superman, while I think it's good and I think it justifies itself, it is slow. The first, even though it takes an hour to get Spider-Man into costume in Spider-Man, it is never slow, and it just hits every beat absolutely perfectly. I genuinely think that the first half of Spider-Man is is just the best superhero story on film. Like for me, the distinction is you're you're with Peter Parker and specifically Tobey Maguire 
for from the start of the film, which in Superman you spend a lot of time with someone yeah. who is not Christopher Reeves, and that, this that is true. creates yeah. a massive disconnect. Yeah, and like with most superheroes, um, the origin story is them getting their powers, and then they get their powers and they become a superhero. With Spider-Man, um, getting his powers is only the first act of the origin story, and the yeah. true origin story then is wanting to become a showbiz celebrity, Uncle Ben dies, learning about power and responsibility. Like, you know, Spider-Man is not Spider-Man until the death of Uncle Ben. So the film has more to beats to play with in terms of getting him to that point. And so I think, you know, it can justify taking an hour to get him properly being Spider-Man because more has got to happen. You don't want the death of Uncle Ben to happen in the first 10 minutes. You need to get to know Peter as a character. The spider bite is kind of incidental. And, you know, it's kind of it kind of happens in the sort of blink of an eye and you almost don't really think about it. I love the design of the spider. I think the spider looks mm. amazing with its little <laughs> blue and... That it, that it puts the red and blue into his head kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, I mean, I don't know how you feel from a comic book purist form that this is not a radioactive spider, it's a genetically engineered spider. Is, is that, uh, makes perfect sense. I can honestly say it never upset me. <laughs> Much considerably less than the mirrored eyes and raised webbing did, <laughs> which I love. But what um, and what about something like the um, the organic web shooters? Because I've heard people bang on about organic Again, web shooters for so like, many years. I just it, couldn't give less of a shit. It looks great. It makes so much sense. Like yeah. there's a logic to it that you kind of think if you want Peter Parker to be relatable, then you know don't make him the kind of super genius who can invent this. Uh, you know, this adhesive that eludes modern science. I can't tell you how bored I was in the first five or ten minutes, in that five-minute sequence where, in The Amazing Spider-Man, he's building his his web shooters in the room, and I'm going, why why am I watching this? He's going to shoot webs, and it's going to be cool. That's all I care about. If you didn't have the organic web shooters, you wouldn't have the moment on the rooftop with him trying to figure out how to make them fire. And yes. you can't lose that from the film because it's one of the best bits in the entire film. I can't tell you how much I love the, the scene or the single shot almost that sums up the superpowers as puberty when <laughs> Aunt May knocks on the door and his room is just covered with webs. <laughs> like that was have Sam Raimi was definitely channeling his inner thirteen-year-old boy at that point. I think. Do you know? I've, I've got a feeling. I'm not. I'm not certain, but I think that particular scene might date all the way back to the to the James Cameron script. Because you know that the organic web yeah. shooters was originally from James Cameron. I think James Cameron really wanted to play up that metaphor even more heavily um, than it is. Because there, there's a scene in the James Cameron script which eventually did sort of get cribbed for Spider-Man 2 or 3 um, with Spider-Man and Mary Jane in a web that he's spun. But in the Cameron right. script, it's played much more uh, in a sort of metaphorical way, shall we say. Yeah. Um, so I don't know for certain, but I have a feeling that that bedroom scene might have been in there as well. I'm just I'm just such a fan of almost everything that happens in these sequences where Peter is discovering his powers for the yeah. first time. I love him flinging himself over the rooftops. The sh- the one that I particularly love is him climbing up the wall and what That's, Sam Raimi does with his camera yeah. during that sequence. The, the way it kind of twists with as he climbs up, like it's yeah, it's brilliant. It starts vertical and goes horizontal and then swoops up around him and twists yeah. back down past him. It's so dynamic and it it, it happens when Peter is swinging through New York as well. I mean, those scenes are a little bit more noticeably CG now, I think, than they yeah. were at the time when we but at when the, we used at the, the time, it was like, Yeah. 
But still, um, I still watch them and I still see Peter flinging himself in between buildings and go, oh, God, they're so cool. That's something that no other superhero ever has. Because, yes, superhero, loads of superheroes fly, but no one has that quite, that, like, just graceful movement and in between skyscrapers and interacting with their surroundings like yeah. Spider-Man does. Also, I'll tell you one thing, just quickly. Uh, web-slinging, I think, as a mechanic, like, you always get the sense that Superman is, con- is in control of where he's going. Whereas... Spider-Man always has this kind of unpredictable thrill of what's you know, next. Yeah, he's yeah. he's basically on a kind of roller coaster of his own making. He'll suddenly shoot off down a left street instead of going straight on. And it yeah. works so perfectly in New York because you've got blocks mm-hmm. rather than yeah. Yeah, this is why the 70s TV series didn't really work. Um, shot <laughs> shot in LA with him running over quite low buildings. Yeah. <laughs> um and I don't know, we, well, I was talking about this feeling like the last of the 90s superhero films, but one of the big influences I feel on the on a lot of the action in this movie is The Matrix. I don't know if you, you agree, but there's quite a lot of scenes when, when Peter is kind of discovering his spidey sense in that fight with Flash Thompson, and he's slowing down and moving out of the way of punches. You kind of get the bullet time sequence when um, Doc Ock fires the like spinny little blade things at him, <coughs> Green where he's Green like, diving out of the way. And even that running over rooftop scene and some kind of jumping between buildings, for me, every time I see it, it takes me back to the to, to the scenes in The Matrix where Keanu Reeves is trying to jump between buildings. Um, just on the... You mentioned the, the Spidey sense, and that's something that the film does really well because it, it's something that the film introduces, you know, that, that hadn't really been done that way before. You know, obviously, he's always had in the comics the, the spider sense that's, in the, particularly in the old comics, was always represented by showing his face, like, half and half Peter and Spider-Man and with the little wiggly lines above his head. But it, it's always been quite nebulous as to what it actually does other than it's just kind of, oh, a warning system. And one of the, film, one of the things the film does so well is to go, okay, here is something that is an inherently comic booky image that we yeah. can't translate to the screen in that way because we're not Edgar Wright making Scott Pilgrim. We can't just put the wiggly lines above his head. Um, so how are we going to portray this cinematically? And it's like, oh, okay, so the idea is essentially bullet time. you know. And okay, so maybe they did just crib that directly from The Matrix, but it works perfectly well, for is, how his spider that, sense there, would work and how you would see it on screen. There are just close-ups of Peter's eyes, aren't there? Well, it was yeah. so like, I mean, oh, they do, right, they the, do the final in, moment of yeah. the movie that Peter knows that the glider is firing at him. Mm. But this idea that time kind of slows down for him really works. For, it's not yes. something that was really how it was portrayed in the comics, but it really works cinematically to give you a sense of this is how it helps him, you know. Let's let's talk about the whole uh, Uncle Ben stuff. Before we talk about Aunt May, who is the worst thing about this movie and is the worst thing in any superhero movie ever. Um, oh, Peter! That's a very <laughs> accurate portrayal of Aunt May. What? In Deliver us from evil! Yeah, that's maybe not the strongest moment in the film. No. <laughs> oh, wait, and what's the last one? Those eyes! Those yellow eyes! <laughs> You're not Superman, you know. Oh, no, that line I love. You're not Superman, you know, is a great line. No, Aunt May is terrible, but that's a great moment. <laughs> <laughs> but Uncle Ben, yeah, they... let's talk Uncle Ben. <laughs> well, again, it's, you know, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, such, an important, it's such an important part of the Spider-Man story. Uh, it's, you really have to get it right. Um, and it's one of those where, uh, if you look back at the original, uh, the, I mean, when I say the original, I mean the original, original Lee and Ditko version of the origin, um, you don't get anything like as much of a sense of the importance of Ben as you do in 
in the movie and it was something that um the the ultimate spider-man comics which which came out kind of just before this film but definitely had a bit of an influence on them yeah um much more play up the relationship between peter and ben before ben's death and you know this film does that superbly you know really does get the sort of the bond between them the difficulty of the fact that they both know that he's not his real dad only you know he he is his father and you know cliff robertson's performance is fantastic he's you definitely know, he, juggling he, glenn ford isn't he yeah. it feels so park end that scene um he, he you know he nails the iconic dialogue with great power comes great responsibility it's cheesy but it is the most important line of dialogue in superhero storytelling ever the interesting thing about that line of dialogue is that it wasn't actually uncle ben's dialogue in the origin story it it was a narrative caption yeah really yeah Yeah. but again i think ultimate spider-man did fold it into being ben's but it was yeah i think and late in in later comics they would have him say oh it was something my uncle ben always said but yeah ben doesn't say it ben has about one line of dialogue in amazing fantasy 15 and i think it's something to do with weak i thought it was really it was really (laughs) interesting because i watched this film knowing very little about spider-man but i walked away from it kind of with the iconic line ringing through my head was that you know great power great responsibility and the relationship with ben echoing through the rest of the film and that kind of becoming mm. a mantra and the thing that drives him and it's it does feel completely central to the whole rest of the story that goes on mm. um and for the for the movie to end in such a bittersweet way but to end because I mean, and we'll get onto it because it's the other the other through line running through the movie, which is the romance. But for Peter to kind of ultimately give up the thing that he wants the most out of life to follow that mantra, I think it it, it really hits you at the end of that movie because mm. you you think, oh, has he just he's defeated the villain? He's got the girl. Oh no, he hasn't. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's the key part of Spider Man as a character is Peter Parker's life would be better if he was not Spider Man. That is, that is like the the core fundamental principle of the character. It's like he sacrifices having a better life because of the fact that he has a responsibility to be Spider Man. Yeah, like any any time you read a bad Spider Man story, you can normally trace it back to they haven't adhered to this this principle. Like if there's not a dynamic of power and responsibility, it you know it basically could be any superhero. And so, so generally, that that first half of the story as a Spider Man origin. Do you think it does? Do you, do you think it ticks most of the boxes, or is there anything from the, from the comics that you wish had made it in there? Or had- if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Being played slightly different. No, I think I'd say I, I, I think it's basically perfect, and I think it enhances a lot of what was done in the comics. I, th- I think the film version of the origin um, has actually become an influence on the comics since because it, yeah, just distills it and really solidifies it. <laughs> There's nothing that's missing. Like you can't point to any big beats and say like, wow, yeah. they didn't touch that. Like the only, if you're really getting picky, you could say. The spider should have been radioactive. I think in the sixties, you know, it's like it's like all of the Marvel stuff was, you know, based on kind of um, radioactive and nuclear paranoia. That's not mm-hmm. a thing in the two thousands. Paranoia over genetic modification was a thing. It makes absolute sense thematically um, to update it to that. And how do you feel about it skipping straight to an older Spidey? Like, oh, I mean, I, I guess it's never really explained quite how much time has passed, but I kind of get the idea that it's maybe. It's maybe not much time. It's maybe that Peter's been in New York for maybe a year or two. Yeah, I mean, that be or do you think it's longer? I don't think it's that much longer. No, it's the thing is like the the popular version of Spider-Man at the time was the sort of slightly aged up young adult version. Whereas you know, since then you've had ten years of Ultimate Spider-Man being a high school Peter Parker, and you know various adaptations keeping him in high school. Since then, they've really played mm. up the Spider-Man as the superhero about learning youthful responsibility, which is yeah. it's probably the best version of the character. But I don't think this this movie strays so far away from it as to lose the kind of essential elements. Okay, and so, we, so we've so we got Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man Peter Parker in New York. I, I, I suppose this is, this is almost going to be the, the key question for this entire film, but how do you guys feel about Tobey Maguire? Because <laughs> I kind of feel like his... I kind of feel like Spider-Man 3 did his portrayal a lot of damage. And I'd say that the fact that this movie kind of feels a little bit aged now... I can almost understand how people that have watched it maybe have gone and discovered Spider-Man through The Amazing Spider-Man could go back and watch this movie and go, oh, no, this doesn't feel like for me. This this is and would not like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. But do you do you guys like him? Do you, do you like his take on Peter Parker? I, I would agree that it's quite an old-fashioned portrayal. Uh, it's quite cheesy, and and this does yeah. tie into what you're saying about you know that there's a lot about that. While there is a lot about this film that kind of looks forward and and is in the kind of the wake of X Men, which is the kind of year zero for the modern comic book film, there's definitely a lot of this that that harks back, and and that that's kind of probably true nowhere more than in his portrayal. It's you know it's completely earnest and sincere. That's and, that's the word that I kept coming back to. It's yeah, so and, earnest, and maybe a little bit too much so for some people. I think it always works better. I think he's a better Peter Parker than he is a Spider-Man um, because 
I mean, as Peter, he is just a, a total dork. And there are so many kind of moments where you cringe for him. And I think those are moments that, that people who want to see a kind of, you know, a, a hero probably don't like. For me, it's like, yeah, that is kind of, that, particularly a younger Peter Parker, that kind of is what he's like. You do kind of cringe for him because he is a nerd who kind of got these powers and doesn't really have a lot of social skills. Um, I think in costume, he struggles a bit with... He's not really a particularly dynamic, wise-cracking Spidey, I think. He doesn't really have an awful lot of dialogue in the costume, though, does he? Yeah, but but when he does, it's kind of muffled and... When he, when he does have dialogue, it is usually pretty quippy. It's quippy, but it never really feels convincing, I think. What I, I tell you what, what, what I don't get the sense, and again, this is the thing, I think that's this, this quite a kind of key thing with Spider-Man, is Peter Parker is this kind of slightly rubbish nerd, and when he puts on the Spider-Man costume, he becomes far more confident because he's hiding behind a mask and he has his powers. And then in turn, that increased confidence does kind of start to feed into his life as Peter Parker as well. I, the sense I get with Maguire's Spider-Man, he feels like the same person underneath the mask as out of it. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, you don't get the sense of him kind of transforming into this cocky, wisecracking hero, which is something that... Well, actually, with Garfield, he doesn't really transform either, but with Garfield, he's the cocky, wisecracking guy, whether he's in or out of the costume as well. Yeah. So it's like, if you could combine Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker and Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man... <laughs> I think you've got the best possible portrayal of, of Spider-Man there. Okay, take take notes, Tom Holland. Like, for me, <laughs> the thing that Maguire, Spider-Man lack, or Peter Parker lacks, rather, is that there's an inherent selfishness to Peter Parker that he resists and overcomes. And I get the sense that Maguire is, aside from that sort of very early scene during the origin that doesn't really ring true, like, I don't get the sense that there's any struggle internally for Peter Parker in this film as to whether he does the right thing or not, because he always just does, and that's Yeah, he seems very goody-goody, like, he looks Mm. after his Aunt May, and it's maybe that there's just, like, there's a month where he first gets his powers where he doesn't really pay the attention to his aunt and uncle that he used to. Mm. Well, like, the the important thing is, he looks after his Aunt May, but he doesn't sort of... At no point does he get kind of annoyed that he has to do that, Mm. which is one of the more sort of human aspects of Peter Parker is that he will look after his Aunt May, but he will also kind of look at all the other kids having fun and be like why can't i be like that yeah. there's a there's a line of um, of dialogue again in the kind of very first appearance that it's it's after he's got his powers and you know when he's kind of he wants to kind of go and make money as a celebrity and it, ben and may have like bought him a microscope or something and he says something like they're the only two people who've ever been nice to me i'll make sure they're looked after but everyone else can go hang for all i care or <laughs> something like that and it's like and that that pretty much sums up where he's at when he gets his powers it's like only two people have ever been nice to him so you know he'll be nice to them but other than that you know he's he's been bullied and picked on and now he's looking out for number one i think there's thing. a bit of that because he is so pumped up when he when he beats up flash he, yeah. he gets that grin on his face it's kind of like oh god and that and that's the moment that prompts him to go out and go and try oh, yeah up a wall. like as soon as as soon as ben dies that all goes away yeah, absolutely. Which absolutely, is like yeah. something that Spider-Man should kind of retain some aspect of is the kind of do I do the right thing? Well, I have to really because power yeah. responsibility. <laughs> I guess for me, this has always been Spider-Man as far as I was concerned because I didn't know anything else. So this Spider-Man was Spider-Man, and particularly, well, particularly Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man in one and two, three less so. Uh, but that that always felt like the version to me. So when I 
actually when I get when I've been getting a bit more into comics or seeing different takes on his character, it's it's always been a little bit jarring to me that he's not exactly like the Toby Maguire <laughs> version. So I've just always been completely on board. Yeah, so I I kind of like him and I kind of like that earnestness and I think he really sells it. And where I think he sells it the most is in every moment with Mary Jane. I love that the first shot of this movie isn't, or the first proper shot of this movie isn't Peter. It's Mary. It's Mary Jane on the bus. Mm-hmm. It's a close-up on her face, and then he's like, oh, can you guess which other guy I am on this bus? I'm like, oh, no, I'm the nerd running up to it. But that's that's the other thing that I think maybe that's why it works slightly better in some structurally than the original Superman does, is that the other key thread of this movie is the relationship with Mary Jane and that is there from the first scene to the last scene and even though we kind of skip from the origin to Spider-Man in action in New York she is the constant and I totally buy the feelings of both of those characters for each other at every point during this movie and I think Peter's earnestness Tobey Maguire's earnest version of Peter Parker totally plays when it comes to the romance yeah I'd agree with that. Yeah, I don't. Re- I don't really want to puncture all of those nice things that you've just said. <laughs> but uh, I just okay. There, are, there are kind of two things here, really. Firstly, I seem to have a quite instinctive aversion to Kirsten Dunst. I just find her really annoying. I find her annoying in this, and I find her annoying in Eternal Sunshine. It's like two films that I love, but that I think. There's just something about her... I'm sure she's a lovely person, but (laughs) just something about her performances I find irritating. And I just... I don't really get Mary Jane as a character in this. I just... Well, that's the thing. I find her quite nothingy. Mary Um, Jane... As a version of Mary Jane, she is terrible. Like, there's so little about this character that resembles any version of Mary Jane that's been done anywhere else. Is she comics Mary Jane, though? Because I I was doing a little bit of reading around and that there was a lot of people who, back at the time the review was released, were suggesting that she was kind of an amalgamation of Gwen, Betty and MJ. And it just so happened that MJ was the one that they chose for the character to actually be. I would say she's more Gwen than MJ, but obviously Gwen has her own story and it doesn't end well mm. so if you want if you want to do a love story you kind of have to do mary jane because for sort of 30 years that was the pairing the character of mj in this film i don't really recognize her as having attributes from from any of the uh, from any of the kind of major <laughs> love interest it's like you know in the comics there isn't a love interest that was peter's childhood friend and neighbor you know that that is the invention of the film and again to an extent Right. of Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, well, you know, which, which of them came up with it first, I'm not sure, because this film was in development for a long time. They did retroactively insert the idea, didn't they? Yeah, but as but like he didn't know her at the time kind of thing. You know, The whole thing of yeah. them kind of having grown up next door to each other and being friends, and he's always been in love with her from afar. That is almost completely this film's invention. And this, this is the thing, Mary Jane of this film is a kind of distinct character in her own right, in terms of, as I say, I don't think she owes much to the comic. And I'm and I'm a I'm a fan of that take. I love I love the two sides of her. I I think she I think Kirsten Dunst actually does a fantastic version, better than Maguire actually, of portraying a high school girl and an adult, and the kind of the tradition the the transition between the two, and a girl who would be going out with Flash Thompson at school, who would then kind of fall on weird time on like hard times economically um, mm. when she moves to New York and not having that family support system and kind of... You, I, I, I buy entirely why she is with Harry. And I think that's why that scene where Willem Dafoe 
goes mad at, at, at James Franco and is saying that this, of course, that she's pretty, they're all pretty, but, you know, why do you think she's with you? Um, and I kind of think that that scene works so well because it kind of does feel a little bit true, not in a kind of, like, conscious, vindictive way from Mary Jane, but that she she's kind of found a safety net in Harry and... I completely buy the arc of that character romantically throughout the film and her attraction to Spider-Man, but ultimate attraction to actually recognising the qualities in Peter by the end of the film. Um, and the, the speech that the speech that he gives her in the hospital room as well is amazing. But you do realise that, that, that they, they just nicked the Superman love triangle and put it onto Spider-Man. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, the love interest is in love Great. with the hero, I'm... the alter ego is in love with the love interest. You know, it's just, it, it, is, yeah. it is Superman. Yeah. And that's fine. And, and it's literally uh, after that scene that um, Rosemary Harris says to, <laughs> says to him, <laughs> you're not Superman, and he grins. I, I, yeah, I, I really like that, and I, I just, yeah, for me, the romance works perfectly, and it is distilled into that one upside down kiss, the Spider Man kiss. I remember as a kid, as a thirteen year old kid, being so desperate to have a girlfriend so I could try a Spider Man <laughs> kiss. And let me tell you, when I got a girlfriend, I tried it, and it's great. <laughs> but that scene is amazing. The f- the, f- the film that- has successfully introduced into the lexicon the phrase "Spider Man kiss" for an upside down kiss. It's yes, like, you know that that is probably the one most iconic shot of the film and it's like who would have thought going into the spider-man movie that yeah that the defining image would be that it's it's an inspired moment i mean i i don't want to sound pervy here because i'm i i really don't mean it to be but it's i think it's probably the sexiest scene that has ever been in a superhero movie and i don't mean because kirsten dunst is dripping wet or whatever but i mean when they kiss that's a really sexy passionate kiss and and there's a great moment right at the end of the film where after MJ is kind of rejected by Peter, she kind of puts her hand to her mouth as if she's kind of remembering because she's just kissed him. She's like, oh, I think it's, I think it's a really nice moment. And again, that, that scene, I think, is just, just about damn near perfect. And especially when you're talking about kind of like a kid's film but can work for adults as well. The, the way she kind of peels the mask down his face, kind of in like she's, she's undressing him but in a 12A manner. Well, I remember, I remember on like news groups and stuff where I used to hang out talking about comics because that's how cool I am. Like there were loads of there were people who were kind of saying, "Oh, you know, this is they've put in this really heavy romance element for the women." Like, you know, screw these people; they don't understand Spider-Man. It's like, well, if you go back to the original Spider-Man comics, they're all a romance, really. Can I ask you, given given that Mary Jane feels like a fairly fresh character? When you were watching the movie for the first time, was there any worry when Mary Jane got dropped from a bridge by the Green Goblin that that scene was going to end <laughs> slightly differently? Nah, they were always just just toying with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's. I, I I actually really liked it watching back because at the time I had no idea about the Gwen Stacy stuff. And watching it now, I was like, oh, I, it feels like that feels like an explicit reference. And also, it's, I thought it was quite nice that it was kind of it's on the bridge in between Queens and New York. It's kind of like. It's kind of in between Peter the two Parker sides and Spider-Man. Of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a really, it's a really nice, 
that it's a really nice metaphor for the, and, and then the characters are being forced to like drag both ways and actually know finding a way to save the person who means a lot to Peter Parker and to save the people that he fights for as Spider-Man um, shall we talk about the villain because <laughs> we haven't really talked about the Green Goblin <laughs> yeah. yet apart from I don't think it needs much discussion does it the costume is dreadful really really dreadful that's, that's the most 90s thing about the film is the yeah. the depiction yeah. of the villain although I've got to say and I mean this plays into probably what they were aiming for but the Goblin and his glider look really cool as an action figure like that's the only yeah, sense yeah. in which they look good they make a good action figure and that's obviously what they were designed for but unfortunately on screen um i don't think it's ever as bad when he's actually flying around on the glider it's fine it's just all of the scenes where he's being shot in close up and talking through the mask it just looks silly just ghastly it's that yeah, scene on the rooftop, rooftop which scene. could be yeah. a great scene willem dafoe is obviously a really great actor i, I mean i yeah. think anyway i don't know if you agree and i think he really sells the kind of jekyll and hyde take oh, on I mean, Green I, goblin which i'm aware yeah. is not something that comes from the comics at all is it this is a movie invention kind of but i mean you know osborne did always kind of have the thing of you know being the sort of um you know the 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 well-known businessman not necessarily a likable businessman but you know a kind of well-known businessman yeah. and then secretly being kind of you know villainous and crazy um the, the thing to note with the green goblin which i'm not sure you're aware of is that the green goblin was introduced as the green goblin and was that villain for quite a while and then the His question of who identity. he was going to turn out to be was a big argument point between Stanley and Steve Ditko um, right. and Steve Ditko wanted it to be uh, just like some nobody um, like you know a random guy who Peter Parker had never met and Stanley wanted it to be his best friend's dad and you know they, they Stan- fell Stan out Lee won. That's why that's why Stanley is the writer and Steve Ditko was the artist <laughs> <laughs> I mean so in the movie I really like the scene for example where he is walking towards the mirror and flipping between being Norman Osborn and being and being the Green Goblin. What I'm not really sure on is I think all the best superhero movies have a proper solid link between the hero and the villain and the fact that he's his best friend's dad I don't think really plays into the emotions of it very much. And then for the Green Goblin's plan to be like join me and we can do stuff together it just seems like they need some way for the Green Goblin and Spider-Man to be interacting and the whole you know the whole Star Wars riff of come to the dark side doesn't never really I, I never really bought that aspect of it it never really develops that that plot line they basically have the one scene like the the link between Norman Osborn and Peter Parker in the in the comic sorry is that he's sort of the father figure Peter wishes he had because he's successful and intelligent and the relationship is Harry doesn't know how lucky he is to have this person in his life who cares about him yeah. Even if he does it in a sort of uh, overbearing and kind of slightly oppressive way, so that's the link. Oh, yeah. Whether whether it comes across in the movie or not is debatable. I don't think it does. <laughs> yeah, I, I I disagree. I, I I really like Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn in this, particularly like more so than than as the Goblin. And what I really like is the kind of the the, the three way dynamic of you know kind of Osborn when he's not being the Goblin, um, you know meeting Peter, and it's like 
I mean, what you're saying about, you know, um, in the comics, kind of Osborne is the father figure Peter wishes he had. I like the fact that, that Norman kind of sees Peter as the son that he wishes he had because he's got this son, Harry, who doesn't really follow yeah, his footsteps yeah. and, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't really have anything in common with. And then he meets this kind of science whiz kid who's interested in what he does, really kind of likes him and gets on with him. And then you have that thing with him coming round for, for Thanksgiving and stuff. But yeah, doesn't that, doesn't that work with Norman and Peter, though? That works with Norman and Peter, but when the two of them don't know their identities for the first two fights it doesn't mean anything and for, oh, no, him I mean, yeah, but trying, as... for him saying oh come and join me spider-man i'm green oh no but yeah i'm, I'm not i'm not saying that any sense. of i'm not saying any of that works but what, what i'm saying that, that, that i like about him in the film is is pretty much every scene where he's norman interacting yes, with peter yeah. and the kind of the build-up and then the deterioration of that relationship when he discovers that he's spider-man plus when you factor in and it's not as much of a feature in this film but it, it builds over the the trilogy the, the complicated relationship that harry has with his dad yeah. and with the memory of his dad uh, and you know it's like it's weird because in the first film i think James Franco doesn't come across brilliantly, but I think as the trilogy goes on, he becomes one of the best things about it. Um, I think he's and- solid. He's it's it's almost remarkable how much of an un-James Franco-y performance it is. He's <laughs> yeah. just he's just turning up and doing the job, and I really I really, yeah. <laughs> really quite like it um, actually. But I think I, th- I think there's real potential in in the villain. Um, for the sort of as I say, the contrast between getting on in their their other identities. And then being, you know, facing off under their masks. The problem is that the Green Goblin is so poorly realised that it doesn't work. And then you've got Spider-Man 2 that does a very similar setup and achieves it much better. Yes. Um, you know, yeah. the sort of you know conflict in, in one life and friendship in the other is played so much better with Dr. Octopus because Dr. Octopus is just generally a better realised villain. Uh, it is a shame that just, yeah, whenever he's in the Goblin costume, nothing about him works. Maybe the final fight scene... Um, but even then, it's like, you know, he's got his mask off for half of that, and maybe that's why that <laughs> works. I think that's the only scene yeah. where him in the costume is in any way convincing. I really, I mean, I really like all of the, I mean, I, I like all of the action sequences mostly because they involve Spider-Man swinging around. I like the darkness that Sam Raimi brings to that last scene, that kind of, that grisly kind of, oh yeah, this is the director of Evil Dead direct <laughs> in this movie. Uh, I it just, is a I bit jarring. That compared to the tone of the the rest of it though i think as i mean you know I, I think if you directly compare the the parade fight attack scene with the goblin and then that final scene they look like they feel like they've come from two completely different films yeah but i think the second one is the one that works i don't yeah, know if you'd no, agree. I'd agree i know I, th- I think that i think that parade scene is is pretty poor um, with Macy Gray, Jesus oof. Christ! If, that, if there's yeah. any element to date a movie, it's Macy Gray. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we... the kid who just stands there, the thing's falling on him, and it's like yeah. the kid deserves to get crushed by virtue of the fact that he's just standing there looking at it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is—I mean, I think it's another thing that kind of makes this movie feel like a remnant of the '90s. Mm. Almost is Definitely. the is the color palette and how. I mean, obviously, Spider-Man is red and blue. But everything about this movie is bright and exciting and multi And it's a sharp contrast to X-Men, obviously, which came the year before and put everyone in black leather. But also also kind of all of the superhero movies that followed that got a little bit darker. Um, and in fact, maybe, maybe the ones that came after that stayed light, like stuff like the Fantastic Four, were the ones that failed and didn't, didn't really leave much of a cultural footprint. Um, but this is this is bright and colourful in almost every scene. It's I I think that's almost why that last scene works so well is because suddenly 
it's turned into a horror movie and you're like oh god the stakes are the stakes have suddenly been raised and i can really tell that you know the characters are in danger here well Raimi as well Raimi's direction is so like he's an author in that sense like you can you can spot a Sam Raimi film from you yes. know 50 paces yeah. whereas a lot of Marvel's current philosophy is try and look like this regardless of who you are and that that influences all superhero films um, I, I think Raimi's direction as well, because it has that Danny Elfman score, and that Danny, Danny Elfman <laughs> for, for me is someone who I hear his music and I, I think of early 90s Tim Burton movies normally. Um, it's funny how uh, close the score to Batman and Spider-Man really are as a... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do like that theme, though. I think yeah, that's it's one a nice of the few, theme, but it's so... It's one of the few non-Batman and Superman themes that's actually memorable and that you can associate with the characters, it's, I think. It's really... It's jaunty at times, but it's also like it's really. I, I mean, it's weird to say, but it feels really affected. It feels like a very deliberate score that is not a score that's designed to to merge into the background. It's there to really pull the heartstrings during the the, the romantic scenes, and it's there to really soar when exciting stuff is going on. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and I and I don't think that's maybe something that we see much of in superhero movies now. I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't identify the score from most Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Apart just from about maybe the, Avengers. the Avengers, the Avengers yeah. theme is probably all that I I've got. That's because Alan Silvestri and Iron Man three. God. <laughs> yeah, but even Iron Man three, I don't know the music until you get to the end credits. It's <laughs> yeah. only can you dig it. Um, yeah, do you guys have anything else you want to mention as stuff you particularly like in this movie? Because I'm aware there's one that we haven't mentioned that is the yeah. single best thing about this movie, and of any yes. movie ever. Yes. <laughs> well, that's, that, that would have been the thing I was going to say. Yeah. We, we, have to, we have to at least <laughs> briefly mention him. J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. That is, like, I mean, if you, th- if you look at every superhero movie down the years, and even looking at things like Christopher Reeve or Robert Downey Jr., um, I really think that J.K. Simmons as Jonah is the single best piece of casting in a comic book movie. He's one of those performances as well who just the strength of it has basically influenced every comic published since because they've all gone, well, I know J. Jonah Jameson because he's J.K. Simmons. Yeah. I'm, uh, so yeah. I've read a couple of comics, Daredevil, Alias, where J. Jonah Jameson has shown up and he just seemed like J.K. Simmons. Was he like that before? Well, a that's bit, the thing. But not to it's, the same extent. It's the Hugh Jackman thing, isn't it? Of he is more like J. Jonah Jameson than any other portrayal of J. Jonah Jameson was. Yeah, it's like he, he kind of takes what Jonah was like in the comics and just amplifies it. Yeah, I, I love the scene when the Green Goblin bursts into the office, but it's great because you, for a minute, only kind of half notice him flicking his half half smoked cigar out at the window. Yeah. Just brazenly, he's in the middle of New York and he's throwing his cigar out the window, and it's only when it pops back in. Um, but I also, it, love, um, I also love that it's a lovely moment in that scene where he doesn't give Peter up. So it's just, it's, it, it, he's, he's like, who's the photographer? And Peter Parker's stood mm-hmm. right there. And James mm-hmm. Jones, he says, I don't know, I don't know. And it's it's a moment, to, a moment that reminds you that just like, okay, this character is a scumbag, but he has some morality to him. Mm. Is, is, is it this film or the second one that's got the line, they can't wait, they're about to? I think that's, the <laughs> that's, that's my favourite. My favourite is, is it in Spider-Man 3 where he's crying over the money, <laughs> the, amount, the amount the wedding costs? <laughs> he's, he's never, he's never bad. I mean, it, the third film gets criticised a lot, but J.K. Simmons... 
knocks it out of the park every time. And honestly, if we don't hear in the next year that J.K. Simmons has been cast to reprise that role in the new Spider-Man movies, I will be stunned. I genuinely mm. think it's going to happen. I, I mean, they're, they're yeah. going to bring J. Jonah Jameson back because I think it was it was telling what a gaping Jonah Hole they had in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. But I genuinely think, now that he has an Oscar as well, J.K. Simmons <laughs> is coming back to do that again. Uh, and I, I can't wait. <laughs> this movie has got me totally psyched for more Spider-Man. It's got me psyched <laughs> for more Spider-Man on this podcast because I'm talking about this so enthusiastically about what is one of my favourite superhero movies. And I'm aware that the next one is better. Yep. It's better. I, I, I almost want to do the second one as the next episode. Should we just do it? Should we just, like, sort uh, oh, I won't say because I won't spoil our post-credit sting. Stay around to the end of the podcast, guys. But I could do Spider-Man 2 in a heartbeat. <laughs> Can I just um, quickly quickly say, actually, as well, uh, Elizabeth Banks as... Uh, what? Betty. Betty, Betty yeah. Brandt. Betty yeah. Brandt. Like, very yeah, small part, in, but perfect. Almost in, in, in about three lines of dialogue, she makes Betty more fun and interesting than Betty ever was in the comics. She makes all, <laughs> um, also more interesting than Mary Jane, which is kind of yeah. slightly well, galling, given that she... Like, like, Betty Brandt is the original love interest, and they did nothing with her over three yeah. movies, aside from go, imagine how great it would be if we let Elizabeth Banks... Like do something. Hey, leave Mary Jane alone. <laughs> <laughs> but that feeds into my problem with Kirsten Dunst, which is you've you've got Elizabeth Banks in the same film, and she would just with be so much more better. As... Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> shall we? Shall we wrap things up now? Then uh, with your Spider-Man related comic book recommendations. So far on this podcast, we've generally resisted recommending things that were written and published prior to the 1980s. We recognise that that to modern eyes and to a new comics reader anything published before then is generally not going to hold up that well you know even if it might be important or significant it might not hold up well but there are exceptions to this and the biggest exception is the lee and ditko spider-man run um though those issues that the two of them worked on together are still some of the best superhero comics ever published. Um, and so I'm going to recommend you one three-issue story arc, which actually is quite unusual for the time because a lot of stories will be done in one or two issues. But this one takes place over three issues. Um, it's called The Master Planner Saga, and it's in issues 31, 32, and 33 of The Amazing Spider-Man from 1965. Outside of the original origin issue, um, it's the most famous Spider-Man story, I think, e- even more so than things like Craven's Last Hunt, Gwen even more so than a lot of the 80s stories oh yeah Gwen okay no Gwen Stacy is <laughs> okay it might only be the third most famous but it's also <laughs> probably the best uh, it's it's issue th- I mean it's a three part story I'd say issue 31 is great because what issue 31 does is it kind of balance it's, it's a really good example of Peter balancing um his Spider-Man life and his Peter Parker life and, and his his Spider-Man life impinging negatively on his Peter Parker life. Like, you know, he first goes to college. Um, it's where you first see Harry Osborn and Gwen Stacy for the first time. They're, they're introduced in that issue. Um, and, you know, sort of, it, it just shows how much he's struggling to kind of juggle the various sides of his life. Um, but it's issue 33 that's the final part of the story um, that just features an incredibly famous scene. And I, I won't really say anything more about it. Uh, it's just an unbelievably good scene that just perfectly encapsulates Spider-Man. Okay, James, what have you got for me? You know, I really agonised over what, what to choose here. Given all that Seb has just said about 60 Spider-Man and how that... 
arc is probably one of the best. I think I'm going to go with my second option, which is the first volume of Ultimate Spider-Man. I almost went with the original Green Goblin stories from the 60s, but they're so close to what Seb just recommended that it seems... Yeah. This first volume of Ultimate Spider-Man, where you get an extended retelling of the origin, updated to a relatively modern context, like... I'm aware it's 15 years old at this point, but it's still more modern than the 60s version, uh, with more modern storytelling sensibilities. And crucially, it incorporates the Green Goblin as the villain, which right. isn't isn't the done thing necessarily. So uh, yeah, it has a lot in common with the movie in that regard. It's a very different version of the Green Goblin to any other version, actually. <laughs> but I think the yeah, Mary yeah <laughs> the Mary Jane is closer to the movie Mary Jane. Uh, the Peter is recognizable as peter parker so even though the ultimate universe has stopped existing that i think that's what you have to go for (laughs) excellent uh well i'm looking forward to reading both of those um let's move on now to our final section which is the pitch and we're going to stay spider-man related because we found out last week uh kevin feige has suggested that the new spider-man movie is going to have a villain who hasn't appeared in the movies before so, guys, imagine I am Kevin Feige and I'm asking you to pitch me a story with a villain who hasn't been used in the Spider-Man movies before. Which villain are you going to pick? And, um, Seb, let's hear yours first. No, I'm going to say Mysterio. Uh, <laughs> Mysterio is, is one of my favourite Spider-Man villains. He's not the best Spider-Man villain. He's not even probably the tenth best Spider-Man villain in terms of quality. Uh, but he is... I, I love him. He's hilarious. Um, Mysterio is a failed stuntman um, who wears a ridiculous costume and a goldfish bowl helmet who uh, commits crimes using illusion and theatrics. As seen in Guardian Devil. Yes, he is. Yes. <laughs> so you have actually read a story with him in. But what I, I, what I would like to do with him, uh, and I should actually... I think I should give credit to my dad was the first person to kind of plant this idea but I think it's a great idea is turn him into uh, play up the kind of illusion and um, theatrical angle and turn him into a Darren Brown-esque popular stage magician (laughs) slash hypnotist make him a popular beloved figure um, who uses his kind of celebrity and also uses things like social media and stuff to kind of attack Spider-Man that way and sort of make it part of his theatrics and part of his show. So rather than just being a kind of a lame burglar who uses, you know, smoke bombs and stuff, actually have him be this kind of really charismatic presence who, like, everyone in New York loves and who kind of manages to kind of turn everyone against Spider-Man. And Spider-Man like has a stage to- costume almost. I'd, I'd probably just I'd just probably just put him in a really cool like green suit or something, and you know give him a cool haircut and a beard. And Reference stuff and... the fishbowl at one point as a throwaway <laughs> gag. Yeah, you would you would you would you would have to have it in there. You would have to you know make reference. And I, I, what I like the idea of, of is him sort of convincing everyone that he's really kind of cool and slick by kind of illusory methods, and then it turning out that he's actually quite kind of weedy and rubbish and has no charisma after all. When Spider Man actually ultimately defeats him, because he's ultimately pathetic, and that's what the fun thing about him is. With, so Wizard of I would like to see yeah i would like to see a pathetic character made to seem really cool and then turn out to be pathetic after all when he gets defeated you might you might have been able to tell from my little like punch-up notes as you were going through that i'm i'm on board with that i really like that Seb. <laughs> james can you can you beat mysterio uh i'm not sure if i can beat mysterio but i'm gonna have a go because for me one of the most interesting things about spider-man is the various love interests he has and it's kind of i like the interplay between his superhero life and his personal life and that 
for me, means if you're going to do a villain who hasn't been seen before, it has to be the Black Cat. Does this count, though? Why wouldn't it? Well, we've seen Felicia, haven't we? We haven't <laughs> seen, the, haven't black seen cat, the Black though, Cat, though, technically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the only thing that could get in the way of this working is the fact that the Black Cat is very close to being a Catwoman knockoff in that she's a thief who has a sort of love-hate relationship with the hero. You know, she's Marvel's Catwoman, and I think Marvel could stand to have a character along those lines in its cinematic universe uh, I just think the I- the idea of this is someone who he's attracted to but who he feels he can't you know act on that attraction and yet he does because she likes him and you know he's human you know that causes trouble for him and it causes trouble for her and it links the superhero life and the personal life in a strong way and I think those are the Spider-Man stories that work best yeah, that's 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 very interesting. Um, when the Amazing Spider-Man was first announced that that was happening, that was when Sam Raimi's plans for filming Spider-Man four and five at the same time was uh, was going to happen, and and so his his four and five ultimately fell apart because again he had conflicts with Sony. Sony wanted more villains, and he had learned his lesson and said no. <laughs> he was going to use Vulture played by John Malkovich, and Black Cat, played by Anne Hathaway, who obviously actually went on to play <laughs> Catwoman. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that's I think that fourth movie with John Malkovich and Tobey Maguire might have been a great lost movie. Um, no, I, I actually really like the idea of Mysterio coming in and up, uh, updating him in that smart way. So, um, uh, honestly, James, I'd kind of zoned out by the time you started talking. I was already on board with Mysterio. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to award the win to Seb this week. Yay. I'm glad I didn't say Hobgoblin, because that, that would have been a, a more serious answer as well, because Hobgoblin's <laughs> awesome. Okay, uh, well, that is it for this week. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter at CU underscore podcast and send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. You can find previous episodes of the podcast at cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com and because this is a Film Divider podcast on filmdivider.com. Thanks for listening and when, and you might hear our next main episode slightly ahead of schedule. So see you in a week and then in a little bit. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. In the right hand, the relationship between man and suit is symbiotic. The suit has power. The man harnesses that power. You need to be skillful, agile, and above all, you need to be fast. You should be able to shrink and grow on a dime, so your size always suits your needs. Cinematic Universe will return in a little less than two weeks' time with Ant-Man. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.